I know many of us are out today, but uh, for whatever reason, but this is the last Sunday of 2019, and I think this week uh, many of us will be celebrating the New Year's, whether it's with friends or family or whatever the case might be. Uh, I don't know about you, but the year has just gone really quick, and uh, Christmas has come and gone. Hopefully you had a good Christmas day with your family and friends or whatever you, you did, but this is an awkward Sunday in terms of preaching because, you know, you, you, you just did a Christmas sermon, but, you know, you're probably going to do a New Year's sermon on the first Sunday of January, and so you just got this one Sunday here in the middle, and you're not sure exactly what to talk about. We often like sermons that give us details, details that are relevant to our lives. We, we like sermons, many of us, that are very practical. Just tell me what to do, how to live. Give me three five or, or ten things that can help me to personally live out my life. But sometimes things aren't always that simple, is it? Sometimes what we need are not the details, but what we need is the big picture, the backdrop, so to speak, where we live out our individual lives to help us formulate our own details. And as the new year comes around, what I want to give you today is not details, but or, nor, nor do I want to give you resolutions or things to do, but I want to give you the backdrop or the big picture of what I think the Bible says we ought to be living for or living like um, or living in light of, if you can say. If you remember two weeks ago, we looked at freedom. And what we looked at two weeks ago was how in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, Israel was always in a period of waiting. They were always longing and yearning for freedom. They were always in captivity under some nation. And we saw that no more clearly than in Exodus, when they were under slavery of Egypt. And what we saw there two weeks ago was that in that moment during their slavery, there was groaning, groaning for freedom. And what we explained there in that groaning is this sound we make, this this deep-seated longing and yearning to be free. And what I tried to do two weeks ago was to show you how their longing for freedom is connected to our longing for freedom. That though physically they were oppressed and looking for a freedom, there's a sense in which we are all oppressed spiritually and looking for freedom to whatever it is that has enslaved us in the moment. And so we too are groaning, in a sense, yearning for that kind of freedom. Okay? But what we see here in Romans is that it's not just free, uh, people that are yearning for freedom. But listen to Romans chapter 8. This is what Paul says in verse 18. He says... I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Do you see what Paul says here? That it isn't just people that are yearning for a kind of freedom, but what Paul says, in fact, is bigger in scope, a bigger picture. What he says there in Romans chapter 8 is that the whole world All creation, in a sense, is groaning. And what he's basically saying here is this, that this world that we live in is not perfect. In fact, the world that we live in is deeply flawed. It's broken. Oftentimes, it's marked by suffering. The world that we live in, not everything is always good, is it? And sometimes, it just 
To say it more colloquially, it just sucks. You look at earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, famines, natural disasters. Creation itself is kind of screwed up sometimes. And everything that lives is subject to some disease. Animals, birds, fish, flowers, trees, humans. Every living thing, including us, is tainted to some degree. And this is why, as I understand it, some folks find it hard to believe in the love of God. It isn't easy to connect disease and death with the idea of a living God. And yet we're told from the Bible that this has been the way since the fall. When God tells Adam in Genesis 3, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree which I commanded you, cursed is the ground because of you. Or in Genesis 4, God says, you are now under a curse from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So in Romans chapter 8, Paul is now seeing the entire natural order Cursed because of man's sin. Groaning, as he says, in birth pains for deliverance. Paul is simply saying, it's not just Israel, but all of creation groans in the hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage of decay and brought into a kind of glorious freedom. And not only creation, but Paul says this, we too eagerly groan, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That we too as people, we groan in our bodies, in our lives. Not just physically in sickness or in disease, but it's also in our disappointments, in our bereavements, in our sorrow, in conflicts, in broken relationships. Even when faced with death and decay, we groan inwardly, wishing that it would all end. We wait, as Paul says, for the redemption of our bodies. No one understood this more than Jesus himself. You remember John chapter 11? It was recorded that Jesus, as he approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, what did he do? It says literally, he groaned in his spirit because of what sin had done to the family of Lazarus. Even Jesus groaned, though he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus didn't just come to give you a solution and an answer to the problems of the world, but he also empathized. He himself felt this burden, this sadness, this pain and brokenness of how things can be in this world. He empathized because he himself knew and will, that he would experience firsthand that brokenness, that pain and suffering, even death when he would go to the cross. He knew the burden of that groaning and yearning. But that's not the end of the story. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the throne. Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 19. In the new world, that death and decay and disease is not the end of the story. That the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. Jesus makes a promise. He talks about a new world. And in the Greek, the word new world is this word palingenesia. It literally means the renewal of all things. It's a cosmic 
rebirth. Okay? Now follow me here. I'm just trying to paint this big picture. It's a little more theological, but just follow me. Jesus is saying that, the, that it's not just the birth of Christ or, or the death of Christ, but there's a future promise of something better. It's the renewal of all things. That's why in Revelation 21, he promises he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for these things have passed away. Everything will be new. Sadness is done. No more fighting. No more struggling. No more pain and sorrow. And even death will be no more. In other words, Jesus is promising that there will be no more groaning. That the world in its entirety will be reborn. It's a promise of cosmic birth. How? Because Jesus didn't just get born, he didn't just die, but he was also resurrected. And now he sits on the throne of glory, and he's done all the work, and he promises because he's been given the power, the resurrection power, to make everything new. Christmas has come and gone, but he's saying Easter is coming. And this is the reason why people in the Bible long for the birth of a Savior. Because it's the birth of a Savior that promises us a future rebirth of all things. It's not just about what he can give you right now, but it's also about what he promises to give you later in the future in the last day. Think about this. We all live after the birth of Jesus Christ now, don't we? We're living literally after Christmas, right? We don't groan or yearn for the birth of a Savior anymore. But then why does Paul say in Romans 8 that we still groan? Why are we reminded, even in our own lives, that this world, our lives, though it's filled with much blessing, is also filled with reminders that there are still some things that are just really off that there are still some things that are really wrong or really bad. Why do we still feel sometimes that this just isn't the way it should be? And it isn't just because we wish that bad things wouldn't happen to us anymore, but it's deeper. We are reminded of these things every day. We are given experiences of these things every day, whether in our lives or in the world that we see outside, that as good as the world can be, it's still not as it should be. That injustice still exists. That brokenness, physical or otherwise, is still evident. In other words, we are reminded daily that this world, as wonderful as it can be, is still not our home. That we are still sojourners and pilgrims traveling through a foreign land. And that is why deep down we all still long, we all yearn and desire not just for the birth of a Savior, but for the fulfillment of what the Savior promises, a rebirth, a renewal, a palingenesia of all of creation, where everything wrong and bad and unjust is now undone. As the people of God, we are reminded today of our identity. Just like Israel, no matter how good their circumstances were at any point in their lives, 
always found themselves in a period of waiting and longing. That even when things were going relatively well, they were always reminded to keep their eyes forward, to keep moving, to keep persevering, to keep hoping for what could be, for what is to come by their faith in God. By their faith in God, they lived their life in this world constantly praying, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. That's how they lived by faith. Because as good as things were for them in any point of their history, it can never be good enough. So they hoped in God. And as bad as things sometimes got for them at any point in their lives, it can't be the end. That there must be more. And so they hoped in God for their future glory. And that's what, that's what I hope we do in the new year. We are reminded of our new identity. And that we are still not home. Now I know some of you, this is a little lofty for some of us to think like this. It's, it's a big scale, isn't it? The cosmos. I'm trying to get my life right now. I don't have time to think about the whole universe. It's a big picture. And some of us might think, yeah, you know, I kind of get it. I get it. One day, one day, right, in the future, maybe in the future, things will get better. But what about now? Why not now? How, how do I know? I mean, what do I do now? Do I just sit and wait? And that's where we come to our passage to understand something very important to us. In Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about our relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says there in verse 3, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into death? And then he says in verse 5, We've been united with him. In a death like his, we'll certainly be united with him. In a resurrection like his. Listen carefully. He uses this word baptism, and he uses this word united similarly. The word united is a horticultural word. It means you've been engrafted in the root. That our life has been inserted in the roots of his life. That there's this relationship that he says that you have by faith. That you are bound to him. And the important thing of understanding this is this. That in verse 5 he says this. Basically he says... Because you are united to Jesus by faith, his past becomes yours. His future is now yours. Everything that he has is now yours in this relationship. So that when he died, so did you by faith to sin. And when he raised to life, he says, so did you by faith for his glory. This is what this relationship means. Think about this. When Let's say... A guy works for most of his single life, just works really hard, and he becomes a multi-millionaire, right? He worked hard, he earned his money, he earned his vocation, and he becomes a multi-millionaire. And let's say he meets, meets this woman, but this woman, she doesn't work, okay? She, she doesn't do anything, but he falls in love with her, and so they get married. And guess what? Now the wife gets to enjoy the riches that the husband earned. But the thing is, one person did all the work, and one person just got married. Right? This is our union with Christ. 
Jesus is saying, or God is saying, look, here's Jesus. Look at what he's done. Look at the things he's accomplished in life. Look at what he has. He did all the work, and by faith in him, you just got married to him. But because of this relationship, everything that he has, everything that is true of him, now becomes true of you. Now, why is that important? Because here's the thing. The word palingenesia, the renewal of all things, the power to make all things new, is only two places in the Bible. One in Matthew 19, which we just read, but the second one in Titus chapter 3. And this is what Paul says. He saved us not because of works done by righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 19, when he talks about the new world, palingenesia, the power to make all things new. But in Titus chapter 3, he talks about your salvation. And he says, you were saved by the washing of the rebirth of the Holy Spirit. And the same word is used, palingenesia, cosmic rebirth. And what Paul is saying is this, because of your relationship with him, the minute you become a Christian, the power that will recreate the whole world is yours right now. The power to regenerate the cosmos, Paul is saying, palingenesia is yours right now because of your faith in Christ, your union with him. It begins to work right now in your life by his word and spirit. Think about this. I, I know this is hard to believe, okay? I know this is hard to believe, but this is what the Bible said is true of you. This year, this 2020, maybe you decided to, to get in better shape. So you're going to hit the gym. You're going to get stronger. So what are you going to do? Maybe you're going to go lift weights, right? But think about this. If you had the power of Superman, what would you do with it? Would you just go back to the gym and lift more weights? Of course not. There must be something more if you have that kind of power. And I'm not saying that in Jesus you're all supermen, but when anybody comes to Christ, what Paul is saying this, you have to understand the nature of your relationship. That's what Paul's saying. You've got regenerative cosmic power from the Lord working in your life. And oftentimes our problem is that when we go to God, our ambitions are too small. When we go to God, we, we just want a little inner peace. We, just, we need a little pick-me-up, maybe to feel like our life matters, give us a little inspiration. But it's a lot more to do it. Sometimes we ask too little of God. Sometimes, like C.S. Lewis might say, we ask for mud pies when God wants to give us a feast in the heavens. Yes, there is future glory. There will be a day when all things will be made new. And that process will be long and powerful. And it may take some waiting. But then again, what Paul is saying is this. While we wait for the new world, we have the power right now to live the new life right now. Does that make sense? Think about this. The power by which Jesus says, I will recreate the world and make it all good, that same power, he says, you have right now when you trusted me in your heart. That's why he says in our passage, 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk newness in life. We too might walk newness in life. Okay? So maybe in 2020, instead of just living the old ways, you, by faith in Christ, you look forward to living new ways. So, for example, instead of ignoring or, or even hating people around you because they annoy you, because of your relationship with Christ, you have the power to be compassionate and loving now. Instead of always being critically judgmental all the time, because of your faith in Christ and your relationship with him, you have now the power to be encouraging Instead of holding on to your unforgiveness, because of what you have in Christ, you have the strength and the power to be merciful now and forgiving. Instead of always taking, 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 and thinking of yourself, by his strength and power, now you can start giving and serving and thinking more of others and maybe less of yourself. Instead of always being cynical and pessimistic, feeling even hopeless, Oh, this relationship will never change. This person will never change. I will never change. Maybe by the power of Christ that's now with you, you could be filled with hope and anticipation and optimism this year. All because of your union with him who says, I am making everything new. you're made a part of or destined to be a part of that future glory, the new world right now. I think my battery died. Here's what I'm trying to say. Maybe this year you need to be reminded to live out of your new identity as Jesus made you to be. And how is that? This is how. That you live like someone who really does belong to a new world, even though you still live in this world. Right now, wherever you are, you live like someone who really does belong to a new world, even though you still live in this world right now. That's hard, but it requires faith. Let me leave you with four or five suggestions, questions to think about as this year comes around that might help you to think about these things more carefully and more practically. Here's one question. What's one thing you could do this year, this coming year, to enjoy God more? Maybe that's what we think about. We need to think about this. If you want to increase your faith, if you want to experience what this thing is all about, what do you do? Maybe what's one thing you could do in 2020 that you could experience or enjoy God more this year? For some of us, it means like reading the Bible. That's great. It's better to read less and remember something than read more and remember nothing. Okay? Remember that. Here's another question to think about as 2020 comes around. What's the most important thing you could do to improve your family life? By faith. Maybe it's family worship. Maybe 10 minutes a day reading or praying or doing something together that requires no preparation. 
These are just simple ways to start getting your faith into action. What's the single biggest time waster in your life? The single biggest time waster. How can you redeem it? And it doesn't just mean stop doing it, but maybe you need to replace that with something that's more beneficial to you. Okay? Whose salvation will you pray for in 2020? These are ways we start thinking like new people. Last but not least, here's the thing. What single thing can you plan to do in 2020 that will matter the most 10 years from now? What single thing that you could, could you do in 2020 that will matter the most 10 years from now? Or more, that will matter the most in eternity? What could it be? You ever think about these things? These are ways to think about, to experience, to begin doing and living like the new persons that you've been created to be. Whatever the case is, as we draw an end to this year, let's remind ourselves and one another that God is still with us and he's working in us by an incredible power that we can't imagine that takes time and effort, but will do what he's promised, not just to make us new, but to make the world new. And you're a part of that. Let's pray.